Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we revisit the sinking of the Lusitania and we hear some contemporary accounts. And we're also on Inishir to hear about a unique art exhibition there and about the campaign for a new pier. The Cunard liner, the Lusitania, was sunk by a U-boat off the south coast in May 1915, with nearly 1,200 people losing their lives. Tonight, we hear the story of that tragedy, with historians and several eyewitness accounts. John Green of Cork's C-103 station has made a study of the sinking, and he compiled this report for Seascapes. There are many theories, myths and mysteries attached to Lusitania. One was that the sinking brought America into World War I. This is untrue, bearing in mind that America didn't enter the war for another two years, it would seem like a very lengthy time for them to make up their minds. Historian and also author of The Sinking of the Lusitania, Unraveling the Mysteries, is Paddy O'Sullivan. Yeah, that was a very popular claim that uh, America was so outraged because America lost 127 citizens on the Lusitania. They were uh, civilians, they were not soldiers, and uh, the American president was furious, Wilson, and notes were flying backwards and forwards. And then uh, uh, people who take a lazy view on history then saw America coming into the war, and uh, everybody began to claim then that the sinking of Lusitania brought America into the war. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. America came into the war two years later in April 1917 on a different issue called the freedom of the seas. The, as America saw it, Germany had become so brazen they were sending submarines to torpedo American ships off the American coast. And he said, enough is enough, we can't have this. And that was the, the final straw that broke the camel's back. So that's why America went to war. In May of 1915, the cox of Cork McSherry lifeboat was Timothy Cohan, father of Arctic explorer Patrick Cohan. Timothy Cohan gave an interview to the Cork Examiner on May 18th, 11 days after the tragedy. The interview was also published in the Southern Star under the title of The Coxon Story. The role of Timothy Cohan is taken here on the programme by Peter Fitzgerald, and these were Cohan's own words. Do take note of how articulate he was in describing their journey to the site of the sinking. It surely must have been a traumatic experience for the crew of the Casey Gwilt, and their frustration at not being able to get there on time to save a solitary soul is very evident in this interview. I saw the big Cunarder passing eastwards on her way. She was well off the southern of the head. I knew it was the Lusitania. We expected her that day. You can't mistake four funnels painted red. <laughs> I thought no more about her for a minute, perhaps so then turned and saw her blowing smoke and steam in volumes to the heavens, while her pace appeared dead slow. She was disting over starboard, so it would seem. I got the glasses on her, and, oh my God, the sight! May I never see the like of it again! Her bows went down slowly under, and her stern stood upright. I was certain that that German got her then. We were ready in the water just ten minutes from the call. Away we rode, no wind to fill a sail. Out on a sea of glass we rode, pulling with might and main. Well nigh fifteen miles southeast we went, never an air of wind to help relieve that awful strain. Rowing till the crew were fairly spent, praying as hard as men could pray. A prayer with every stroke. Oh God, keep them alive until we're there. 
I tell you, we rode until our heads were well nigh broke. We sweated in the sultry summer glare. There were steamers coming westwards. We could see them off the head. They had engines to propel them. We had men. We'd have beaten them and saved a hundred lives or more, tis said. If we only had a mortar in us then. Men and women. Aye, and children. Lying face down in the tide. Oh, God, it was a pitiable sight. We could see that from the exhaustion of many of the poor things died as we got our bodies in through the night. was a cruel, cruel murder of poor innocents we know. May God's vengeance and the German hounds descend. But after all our efforts, it was a painful, bitter blow that our boat had not one rescue in the end. We are fitter for a gale of wind and ready day and night to risk our lives for fellow men to save. But rowing miles and miles in cam is neither fit nor right. Before we're there, they're sunk beneath the waves. Give us a lifeboat with motor power, certain to save lives, something that will take us round the head. Then we'll bring the rescue to their sweethearts and wives, for we'll get there, for the sea is strewn with the dead. After settling in well and carving out a comfortable life for themselves in New York, Julia O'Neill from Ross Carberry and her husband, Flora Sullivan from Kilgarvan in County Kerry, were returning to Ireland on board Lusitania. Flora's father had passed away and they were returning to take over the farm. Not to do so would have meant that the farm would be sold and obviously no longer in the O'Sullivan family. As Lusitania sank, Julia and Flora jumped overboard. Although a huge wave had separated them, they both survived and were reunited later. However, on arriving in Kilgarvan, Julia was shocked at what she saw and what would be a mammoth task to make a living on this farm of poor land. The part of Julia O'Neill is again played by Mary O'Leary. After a few days in Ross Carberry, Flora and I made our way back to Kilgarvan. Oh, when I saw that hilly farm, with land not a patch on what we had in Ross, I knew we had our work cut out for us. The old two-up, two-down farmhouse was no great shakes either. I used a bit of the money the Brenders left me to bring some comfort to the house, and Fleur set about putting the farm to rights. It was a far cry from Long Island, I can tell you, and not an easy life. Now, I wouldn't be telling the truth if I didn't tell you that Fleur was not cut out to be a farmer. Sure, that's why he left in the first place. And anyway, he soon became more interested in politics than farming. Now, don't get me wrong, I understood what drove him to politics. You see... When we first came back from America, we had no appreciation of the way opinion in Ireland towards England was changing. The IRA was very active around our part of Kerry during the Troubles, but Flora concentrated on the farm and took no part or interest in them or their activities. It all came to a head one night when several masked men came into our yard, claiming to have boys on the run to feed, and they drove off 12 of our sheep. Now, those sheep were our livelihood. We had four children by then, so there were six mouths to feed. And anyway, those sheep never fed any boys on the run. They ended up on the farm of one of those men. When they grew up, four of the boys headed for England, leaving only Tim John the eldest at home. The girls. Ah, the girls. Elizabeth, Mary and Nellie.
Most people agree that it was the second explosion that sank the Lusitania so quickly on May 7th, 1915. But was that second explosion the result of Schweiger firing a second torpedo from his submarine, or was it caused by munitions stored secretly on the ship? Paddy O'Sullivan, author of The Sinking of the Lusitania, Unraveling the Mysteries, is adamant that Schweiger did not fire a second torpedo. But in the aftermath of the sinking, the two subsequent inquiries sought to otherwise convince the public, for good reason, and in their own interest. He only fired one torpedo. The, the subsequent tribunal declared that, that there, was, there were two torpedoes fired. Only one was fired. But the reason the tribunal uh, came up with the two torpedoes was it took the public's mind, their attention, away from the fact that something else caused a second explosion. And also at the Mersey Tribunal, they pushed the torpedo explosion way back along the ship, back towards the aft end of the ship. Now, if that had been the case, the ship would have gone down at the aft end, not at the bow where the actual um, explosions had happened. So the idea of introducing a second torpedo was to keep the public mind away from the explosive cargo in the forward hatches of the Lusitania. If there hadn't been a second explosion, it's quite possible that the Lusitania could have limped into what was then Queenstown. Yeah, uh, if, if there had been no second explosion, the Lusitania, comparing uh, victims of torpedo, lots of other ships, would very likely have floated for 12 or 14 hours, maybe 20 hours, but um, had only one explosion occurred on the Lusitania. I, undoubtedly, some crew members might be killed, but it would be a small number. It would certainly have made Queenstown, and uh, it's highly unlikely that any effect would have been had on the passengers. To add to the debate about whether Schwieger had or had not fired a second torpedo, the captain of U-20 wrote in his war diary, Es sieht so aus, als würde das Schiff nur für kurze Zeit über Wasser bleiben. Ich gab den Befehl auf 25 It seems that the ship could only stay afloat for a short time. I gave the order to dive to 25 meters and to leave the area. I couldn't fire another torpedo into this mass of people who undoubtedly were trying to save themselves. 3.20 in the afternoon, the land and the lighthouse could be seen very plainly. When taking a look around, a large steamer was in sight ahead on the port side with a course laid for Fastnet Rock. Tried to get ahead by high speed to get a stern shot, but the torpedo did not strike. Incorrect setting of the torpedo tube not possible, for the torpedo officer was very careful. The steamer was a freighter of the Cunard Line. The region south of Ireland from Fastnet Rock to George's Channel at a distance of 30 to 50 nautical miles from the coast will always be one of the best regions for war on commerce. Schwieger also went on to recommend a change of torpedo in the future for this type of warfare. Two interesting footnotes to all of this, and there are many. After the sinking and as a result of American pressure, Germany decided to abandon their unrestricted submarine warfare. Either nobody told Schwieger or he chose to ignore it, but four months after the sinking, Schwieger sank the Hesperian, which was also a hospital ship. He was ordered to Berlin to apologise for his actions and for disobeying orders. Hesperian was carrying the body of Francis Stevens, a victim of the Lusitania sinking. This would be the second time that Stevens was on a ship sunk by the same submarine. But two years later, Schwieger suffered the same fate himself. On September 5th, 1917, while commanding U-boat 88, he struck a mine en route from Germany to France. There were no survivors. During his career, Schwieger had been awarded the Order of the Cross, Iron Cross Second Class, Iron Cross First Class, and a few months before his death, he was awarded the Poor Le Marit Award. He was described as being an aggressive, ruthless, but skillful naval officer and had sank 49 ships during his naval career. Another interesting footnote. The torpedo officer on board U-20 was Raymond Weisbach. 
One year later, he was assigned his own submarine, and it was he who dropped off Roger Casement at Bannistrand in County Kerry. In 1966, and because of this, presumably, the Irish government invited Weiss back as guest of honour for the 50th commemoration of the Easter Rising. One wonders if the government were aware at the time that this was the officer, who, although ordered to do so, fired the torpedo that caused the deaths of 1,198 innocent lives on board Lusitania. Survival stories usually have happy ever after endings, but in the case of Julia and Flora Sullivan, who survived the sinking of Lusitania, their ever after was filled with sadness. Elizabeth had a romance that went wrong, and she left Kilgarvan for America. She never came back, so I never saw her again. Nellie headed to England like her brothers. She always wanted to become a nurse, so she went off to trade in St Peter's Hospital in the East End of London. 1941, the year that broke my heart. On the 5th of January, a few hours after she complained of a headache, my daughter Mary was dead from meningitis. She was 21 years old. In April, a German bomb hit St Peter's Hospital in London. After rescuing 10 children from the damaged building, my brave and lovely Nellie went back inside again to check if anyone else was left behind. The building collapsed on top of her and Nellie was killed. She was 20 years old. Flora never got over it. He just kept on repeating. When the Germans didn't succeed in drowning us, they came back and killed Nellie instead. He lost interest in everything and took to the bed. Three months later, in July, Flora died too and we buried him in the graveyard in Kilgarvan beside Mary. During the long, lonely years since, I have often wondered how life might have been if Flora had not felt an obligation to hold on to the land. In that house on the side of the hill, where once there were ten of us around the table, there was only myself and Tim John left. We should have stayed in America. Well, in the days following the Lusitania's sinking, an air of immense sadness and confusion enveloped the town of Cove. Survivors wandering the streets in a dazed manner, wondering what to do next, but some obviously looking for family members who are still missing. Yvonne Allen is a member of the board of directors of Cove Museum. You also had people then who came over from England looking for their family members and some people weren't able to accept that their family members were dead and they were staying on in the vain hope that they would find their missing relatives. But quite a number of people, of course, were unidentified dead in the graveyard in Cove, in the mass graves. You had a lot of people then who were never identified and we had 169 people buried here in the cemetery in Cove. Back in the foyer of the Commodore Hotel in Cove, there are ample reminders of how this tragedy shadowed the town. Many poignant photographs on the wall depict the sadness of the tragedy etched on each and every face. Historian and author of RMS Lusitania, It Wasn't and It Didn't, Dr Michael Martin, says that the townspeople's support didn't just end at the quayside. I mean, those that had boats and had the opportunity to do so went out to see if they could help in any way. People gathered down at the Cunard Shipping Company office and in some cases even brought people to their homes. They didn't just rescue people from the water. Even when they came ashore, they were looking after the injured. They were comforting the bereaved and reaching out to them very much on a human level and unfortunately, you know, burying the dead in in the end. But I think that there was a, a very wide engagement at local level that went across several different layers of trauma and difficulty. That's admirable. That was John Green of C103. 
John compiled that report from a three-part series on his programme, Where the Road Takes Me. Now next, Lorna Siggins has been to Inishir on the Arid Islands. And there, people describe their pier as a disaster waiting to happen. The island has been campaigning for a number of years for a safer structure, especially after two passengers had to be rescued from the water a number of years ago after a ferry gangway fell off the pier. Lorna heard about that campaign and she also met the Inishir Arts Director Darren McGee about an exhibition involving 21 Kirks as a canvas for artists' work. I'm on the deck of Bonnery Nefariga and we've crossed from Rosseville this morning to Inishir. I'm going to speak to skipper and former island community co-op manager Paddy Crow about the very dangerous state of the pier on the southern Aran Island. But first of all, I met artist and artistic director of Ireland's most westerly arts centre, Dara McGee. The arts centre is celebrating 21 years with a series of events, including a very special exhibition focusing on the Curragh. So, Orazena is celebrating 21 years in existence this year. Um, It was set up in a disused uh, weaving factory. Uh, Mick Mulcahy came here in the 90s to uh, he rented the place and he painted for a year and some of his colleagues and friends decided that the work was so fantastic it should be exhibited on the island and they cleaned out uh, the factory and hung the exhibition and I suppose the seed was sown then for an art centre here uh, on Inishir. So we're celebrating 21 years and um, I came up with the idea of Coracha basically because uh, the traditional Coracha would be made of timber and covered in canvas and being a painter myself and painting on canvas, I put two and two together and came up with an idea, wouldn't it be lovely if we could get some painters to paint uh, Corrocks? So we commissioned 21 Corrocks. Uh, Tom Meskill, Eugene Finnegan and Carmel Balf created the Corrocks for us and we sent them all around the country to the artist studios where they went about uh, doing these fantastic pieces of work. Um, so we're in here in the theatre. There's seven Corrocks inside in the theatre, uh, which we've turned into an exhibition space. And we have Miko D, or HJ, who has a lovely black Corrock with a painting on it of Aaron fishermen sitting in, in Corrocks on the sea. Uh, beside that, we have Dolores Lynn, who used the, uh, her memories of the Nivena, um, delivering the cattle on a crane down and a Corrock in underneath. So it, it's a beautiful depiction of a way of life that's, that's now gone from the island. And then we have the centrepiece here, which is a beautiful piece of sculpture. The Corrock is mounted uh, on six stainless steel oars, which is sculpted by John Behan, RHJ. And Corrock is painted blue, and they, he, uh, the title of the Corrock is Oxford Blue, and it's a, a stunning, stunning piece. So the seven Corrocks inside here in the exhibition theatre, we have four out in the courtyard, we have uh, one down in the church, and the other Corrocks are dispersed all around the island as far back as the lighthouse. And it's fantastic because people are coming out and they're, they're ticking off all the Corrocks and they want, want to see all 21 of them. As my own son Oshin said to me, he said, Dad, it's like an Easter egg hunt for Corrocks. So Tommy Degshasavar Cave in Ashir, and I'm with Paddy Crow, who's a skipper and former manager of the island co-op. So there's been a long campaign to improve this pier. Paddy, could you just tell me how dangerous is it? Well, it's extremely dangerous. It's okay on a fine day like everywhere else in Ireland, but on a, on a windy day with uh, easterly winds, 
the pier is very dangerous. It's open to the east winds completely and the, the ferries or any boat can't really use the pier. Then Atlantic swells or if a storm is at sea, you mightn't have wind, but you'll get swell in from the Atlantic and these overtop the pier completely. There are days when the pier disappears on the wave, the whole pier. As well as that, we get a lot of um, overtopping just from like northwesterly winds, like yesterday and, and the day before. Uh, it comes up and, and just people coming down where the ferries can dock, but people are soaked to the skin with the sea coming over here. But especially in the winter time, uh, like when, when we do get a lot of gales, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, there's been so many near misses on this pier that it's absolutely mad. We're too quiet a people. We haven't been voicing our opinion loudly enough, I would say, to explain how dangerous this pier is. We've met everyone from Taoiseach downwards and nobody disagreed that we shouldn't have a pier, but nobody came up with the actual money, if you like, to say, go ahead. And in the meantime, Doolan went ahead and they were given by the government at the time 10 million euros. They hadn't planned permission. We had planned permission and no money. They had, they had money and no planning. But like, it was the best thing that ever happened to Doolan, of course. And uh, it's brilliant. And in three years, they built and finished the pier. And uh, we're still here since 2007, waiting to see, can we get ahead? Now we've been promised by Minister Humphreys that she has given the go ahead to Galway County Council to progress, which is great news. But straight away bureaucracy has set in and we're told that a foreshore licence may take 14 months. This is after you've been handed a pier and like it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. It's just, I don't know what to say, if it was happening anywhere else, people would be gone mad, I would think. Do you know what that would say? This is not right. But it isn't right. We're an island community and we're the only island that's left without a pier that is safe, that we know of. And it's as well as that, it's the ferries in the meantime, since 2007, they've all doubled in size. So there are four ferries work out of Doolan alone that can carry in one trip about 850 people. And so they won't all arrive in Tinnish years at one time, but at least 400 will arrive at, at days when it's very busy. There are hundreds of people on this pier, hundreds and hundreds. Whereas in Doolan, after they've done their fantastic job of the pier in Doolan, they have a harbour master in charge seven days a week and everything is run and controlled and you can see the difference is like going from total control to none whatsoever. We don't want to see anyone hurt, lost or anything else like that but we were looking at this all the time and saying please do something, you know. So Eamon O'Keefe was saying that a, a job like this should be treated as vital infrastructure. Absolutely. Strategic is the word. Like, I mean, islands uh, of Ireland are very important. They're, they're more important than people maybe realise, but I think people are beginning to realise and the numbers of people that come out to Inishir uh, to see the island and go home very satisfied with seeing the island life and the way we live out here is huge now in comparison to, to years ago. There would be fishing vessels operating out of here as well. And how do they find it? The fishing is, is a fantastic industry around Inishir. Uh, the lobster uh, fishing especially, but then some white fish and that as well. And it's, it's vital to the island, like it's vital for families to the island, and they can't use the pier. They can use the pier only just for a few minutes a day while, while they pick up their bait, as we saw a, a man putting bait down there now. So he has to launch his boat if he wants to. He can't launch his boat right now because the tide is low. And these men have to come ashore at night time. I've pulled up fishing boats, at maybe half eleven at night time because just that's the way the tide works and you're there and you're saying this is mad like why you can't tie the pier 
the ferries have really, I suppose, they come in and they take first presence because they're huge anyway. They've, as I said, doubled in size. The pier on the inside, the old pier, is just too wide open. You can't leave your vessel there. It's too dangerous to leave your vessel there. So the, the fishing takes place from the shore, if you like. You have to put down your boat, take up your boat when you go fishing. It was grand when it was Corrocks, when you'd put your Corrock up and down the beach. That was normal. But we've gone from that, I'm afraid. And really, it, it was great, but that was a very hard way of life also, whether it, you know. And it was a beautiful way of life, but hard, hard work, very hard work. And they've done a fantastic job here in the V-notching, especially on the, on the lobsters, where they have V-notched for years now, and the amount of lobster on the island has, has really come back. It's big, it's, it has worked for them. And they're very good at the husbandry, as I'd call it, like around the island, and very interested in what they do. But again, there's no backup for them. But back to Curica, the name of the exhibition celebrating 21 years of Inishir's Art Centre. Darren McGee told me that his grandfather in Donegal had been a Curric builder. So you were saying your granddad built Curricks? Yeah, my, my granddad, he passed away before I was born, but he built Curricks up in Port de Bland, Donegal. So I suppose what goes around comes around. So we're here beside another Curric, which is uh, by Deirdre McKenna. We're out in the courtyard in Orthena. And it's an amazing piece of work. She, she knitted a cover for this in the iron jersey, iron sweater pattern. And it was knitted in white wool. And then she covered in it in uh, black bitumen tar, which is what's used for covering the traditional curragh. And it's an absolutely amazing uh, piece of work. There's an awful lot of time gone into it. It's one of the favourites, people tell me, when, when they've seen all the exhibition. It's, they're all beautiful, aren't they? This is Alana Robbins' uh, curragh. And Alana um, spent time here in residence maybe 10 years ago. And her memory of being here is all the noisy crows that we have nesting up in the, in, at the front of Oris Aina here. And she did a design of all the, the crows flapping about. And it's a, it's, a, it's a noisy design, which is beautiful. There's a lot of movement in it. That's her memory of being here at Oris Aina um, while she was on residency. So this is Anya Phillips at Curruck, And she has created a, a three-dimensional kind of relief again based on the pattern of the iron jersey. But this one, rather than being done in wool like Deirdre McKenna's, she's done hers uh, with a textured plaster. And it's beautiful, it's white. You could almost eat it. You could almost <laughs> eat it, yeah. Stick a few candles on it. Yeah. Lorna Siggins on Inishir. And that exhibition, Corica, continues until September 12th on the island and then moves to NUI Galway for another month. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programmers podcast is on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the program, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.